0: Welcome to Losing My Religion, a podcast for and about you. It is the audio diary of a humanist celebrant. A humanist celebrant who used to be a student for the priesthood. I've come a long way. This week, my memoir has been published. It has been published as paperback and as a Kindle. I am proud as punch. I'm holding in my hand my book. In my gut, I don't believe. In my gut duty, I don't believe. It's a big moment. I have been working on this book for 25 years. 25 years, folks. It's a long time. I have needed to write this book. And it was like as if I really couldn't be writing anything else until I wrote this book and told my story. Why did I write it? Why might you read it? I did a radio documentary for RTE called From Belief to Unbelief. I was delighted with it. I was utterly thrilled to do it. It was shortlisted for the New York World's Best Radio Awards back in 2012. But it was a 40-minute radio documentary. And people listened to it, and I got great feedback from it. And I loved it. I found it cathartic. But with only 40 minutes, there's only so much you can say. In my gut, I don't believe, a memoir by Joe Armstrong is now available on Amazon and can be ordered from any bookshop in the world. It's the old story. You're waiting for a bus for ages and ages, and then two come along together. The electronic version and the paperback. I'm particularly thrilled about the paperback. It's quite a weighty tome. I love the cover. My son designed the cover. He is a 3D artist. Art and computers are his thing, so I asked him to think about a cover. The book couldn't have been written were it not for the fact that for decades I have kept a journal. So the journal is key to the book. And John came up with a brilliant idea to photograph a cover of one of the volumes of my journal. And so the texture that you see on the cover deliberately looks a little bit worn because it is exactly a photograph of, I think it's my 1983 journal, which is kind of a bluey navy, but it's faded over all these years. On the front cover, we have superimposed a photograph of my actual final profession cross. Final profession is a ceremony that anybody who is in a religious order will have, when they commit for life to the congregation and the congregation commits for life to that member. My diaries were obviously incredibly informative because memory is very unreliable. We forget things. But when you have a contemporary record, not just of what happened, but my thoughts and my feelings It's an invaluable resource. And indeed, when I was working my way through my journal, I was reminded of things that I'd forgotten about. It also helped me to see the bigger picture. It helped me to connect things which I couldn't otherwise possibly have connected. There are things in my memoir about which I am embarrassed Chris Tomasina was my agent way, way back. She's based in in New York and she was interested in my book and she gave me a lot of feedback and I worked through lots of drafts with her. But one of the things she said was, I feel you're holding back. And she was right. I was because with any private journal, there's stuff in there that you don't really want to go public. It's not the kind of stuff you want the whole world to know about. And yet, unless I was willing to be vulnerable and reveal my ordinary humanity, then the book wasn't going to be much good. So I'm happy to say that the book has lots in it, which I don't particularly want to be shouting from the rooftops. But I just felt it was a deal that I needed to make with the reader to be honest. And I firmly believe, and I believe this as a writer, I firmly believe that when you are honest and when you are true and when you are personal, that it is then that you are universal. So yeah, there's quite a bit in this book that's embarrassing, but that's the deal. And somebody once said to me, those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. So there you have me. People often ask me, how did you go from somebody who was so committed to religious faith? You had final vows. You had studied for the priesthood for nine years. And now you don't even believe in God. You don't believe in an afterlife. You don't believe in a supernatural. You believe that when you're dead, you're dead. And you believe that all we have is now. And I've often been asked, yeah, but how did you get from a committed religious belief where you were putting your life, your relationships, your work, your will on the line? How do you get from that to almost what might appear to be the opposite, not believing at all? And in a sense, I wrote the book To answer that question for myself, they say, write the book you want to read. I kind of wanted to find out how did I shift from belief to unbelief? And I can tell you it was gradual. The book is also, I think, of interest to people who are interested in Ireland and how Ireland has changed from the 1960s to 1989. So the book deals with the period just before my birth because I talk about my family and how my parents met. I was born in 1962 and then I left in 1989. So that's the period that the book is dealing with. And most of the book is dealing with from 1980 to 1989. But there's quite a lot in there about my family and my childhood and adolescence. It was of interest to readers to know how did you get to the point of joining the seminary, not just leaving it. And that also was interesting for me to see how I developed an interest, an attraction to the mythology of religion, the lifestyle of the priest, the status of the priest, the role of the priest. I have an epigraph and it reads: If you would be A real seeker after truth. It is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt, as far as possible, all things. René Descartes, Cartesian doubt. And that is the epigraph for my entire book because that is what happened to me. I was born into a faith, born into a a worldview. But it is a good thing to doubt everything and to build up your life again from ground zero. I'd like to read the opening of the first chapter. Many souls will be saved. And this is a phrase which was used by a priest when I told him I wanted to be a priest. And yes, he told me that congregation would be looking at me and I could be looking at the congregation. But at the end of the day, he felt confident that many souls would be saved by me becoming Priest. There's a lot in the book about the novitiate because the novitiate was my first year in this new family, learning new things, being excited by the fraternity, the community, being challenged, and informing myself of what this religious life was all about with its vows of celibacy and obedience and poverty. So in fact, I'm going to read chapter two, which is the first chapter of me in the seminary. Chapter two, A New Family. By the way, the whole book is broken into a hundred episodes. Each episode is about 800 words. There were as many as 20 novices in our novitiate. 17 from Ireland, 2 from England and 1 from Germany, numbers unimaginable today. The formation staff comprised Superior and Novice Master Father John Hannon, who had a background in psychology and management. He would later become Superior General of the congregation. He was assisted by Father Dennis Green, then in his 60s, whom I grew to love. Decades later, when he was in his 90s, he helped me to make my RTE documentary. I've always thought of him as one of the youngest men I ever knew, creative and ever open to new ideas. Father Peter Allen was a handsome Englishman who had the distinguished air of a Benedictine abbot. He had a beautiful speaking voice and he was an expert on liturgy and spirituality. He regaled us with stories of spiritual quest and adventure. Finally, German father Bernd Cordes had an astute ability to listen one-to-one. His focus was relationships. He facilitated group exercises, helping novices forge lifelong friendships. We were told to respect the clausura, the separation between the scholasticate and the novitiate. Scholastics, students who had completed their novitiate, studied philosophy and theology, they slept in the middle wing of the sprawling seminary, sat on the right in the chapel, had their own common room, and dined together in the refectory novices, lived in the new wing, prayed on the left at chapel, ate with fellow novices and had a novitiate common room. In 1980, there were about 40 men living in Mount St. Mary's, including priests, scholastics and novices. When I did my RT documentary from Belief to Unbelief in 2012, there was only a handful of mostly elderly priests no seminarians, and the chapel lay silent. Lectures were held in a drab, high-ceilinged room with old wooden sash windows. I remember Dennis's first lecture. He rubbed his eyes so hard with thick-veined hands that I wondered if his eyes might squish out he was like a Shakespearean actor, employing dramatic variations of voice, and volume and pace. Still one moment. He moved about the classroom the next, with dramatic hand gestures, facial expressions and effective eye contact. Brothers, do you want to know the purpose of your novitiate? To know yourself. Make that your aim this year. We want you to enter into yourselves, attain a manly self-possession. Contemporary man seeks truth and they will see through any hypocrisy. John Hannon distributed jobs between us like librarian, informarian, coordinators of External and internal manual labor, guest master, sacristan, master of ceremonies, manager of the Pustinia, a self contained wing for retreats, security and lock house maintenance, and monitor, whose task was to foster unity within the novitiate community and to liaise with the formation staff. We prayed about three hours a day. An hour's personal prayer plus mass and the divine office at morning, noon, evening and night. There were also weekly prayer meetings. We had four silent, week-long retreats over the one-year novitiate. I loved the close bonds we were forming. I felt lucky, freed from the rat race to explore the meaning of life, get to know myself, learn how to love as Christ did, prepare myself to serve the real needs of people and train to be a holy priest. If at home I had felt isolated, here in novitiate I was included and belonged. We shared a common purpose. My confreres listened to me and I listened to them. Shortly into novitiate, on a religious feast day, alcohol was produced. Oh, I don't drink. I told Father Peter Allen. I'm cautious of it. Two of my uncles were alcoholics. I respect your choice, he said, sipping his wine. It's not for life. I intend to drink, maybe by Christmas. A few days later, alcohol was again produced. I had a beer. Peter Allen saw me. I decided not to wait, I grinned. Good for you, given you decided. I couldn't figure out what you were waiting for conversations were stimulating. Strong characters abounded. Great dirty jokes were told. Priests and students challenged our religious ideas and pieties. The church was criticised constructively. Theology, even in novitiate, involved questioning many things, although not everything. Self-knowledge was essential. Humility was knowing yourself as you were. Psychology was valued and personal motivation was explored. We were on the path to a healthy, realistic self-knowledge and insightful understanding of ourselves for personal growth. After Compline each night, the community gathered around the statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the dark vestibule lit by a solitary blue votive light. We sang the Salve Regina. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae. I loved this my brother's faces lit by the flickering light, the chapel's aromas of polish, candle wax and incense, the ancient, lolling Latin melody with its plaintive air, the intimacy with the imagined, merry, compassionate and all-accepting mother. But then came that feeling of loneliness, as we retired alone, each to his solitary room. In My Gut, I Don't Believe, a memoir by Joe Armstrong is now available on Amazon and can be ordered from any bookshop in the world. The book began as a column in the Irish Freethinkers and Humanist magazine, and it was well received and I got great feedback from the column. And I realised that finally my story was being told in print. But the magazine is published six times a year. And at six times a year, and at 800 words per column, I reckoned it will take very many years to tell the whole story. Writing the column also taught me my intended audience I think part of where the book floundered before was I wasn't sure to whom I was writing. But this is a a humanist magazine. It's a magazine for people who are not believers or who maybe used to be believers, but they're pretty convinced that we don't need religion and that gods and religions are man-made. And that discovery of the reader helped me to focus the book, because if you're trying to persuade a believer... Well, that's a totally different kind of a book. So in a sense, I'm not trying to persuade anybody. And by the way, it's also kind of interesting because some people who are not religious have all kinds of biases against religion, some of which are entirely unjustified. I'm happy that the column has actually given some readers a better appreciation of the, the good of religion. And the good intention and the good motivation and the good values and so forth. People were impressed by the respect. There's a lot to be said for appreciating both points of views. So my book, in my gut, I don't believe it's not in any sense a polemical work. It's not trying to prove that religions are wrong. It's simply trying to show the steps I took. And part of what interested me in finding out how, that question, how, it's almost a how-to book for me, how, how did I transition. When religious people, people who in their own minds are motivated by religious thoughts and motivations or what they regard as religious thoughts and motivations, when you think that quote-unquote religious people can fly an airplane into a skyscraper or can behead a teacher or can prevent babies from being buried with their parents, Because the baby wasn't baptised. Or can tell a huge segment of the population, because of their sexual orientation, that they are intrinsically disordered. And that if they are to manifest their actual sexuality, that they are sinning mortally. Religion does all that to people as well. So if we're to grasp how it is that some people Do these awful things, the Inquisition, in the name of religion. Then discovering how this author shifted, what steps I took shedding my religious self is potentially of interest. Because if those steps are valid, then they could be of interest for others who themselves want to discard their religious thinking, or others who are trapped in religious thinking who could be helped to think differently. And by the way, I needed help. I needed help. I eventually went to counselling. in The last six months that I was a Marist, I asked if I could see a counsellor. And I suspect that had I not done so, I might be a priest, because I needed that experience in order to question everything, to doubt everything. And when I get to the counseling section of the book, it's I use the image of being turned inside out. and at first, that was a painful image, and then I realized it was actually brilliant because when your insides come out then you're authentic. And for me, and this is where I get to the the title of the book, just temperamentally, I see 360 degrees of any issue at the same time. There are people who always doubt. There are people who always have faith. And there are people of faith, I know, who have never doubted at all. But I have never regretted the fact that I pretty much always doubted. And in fact, as you will be aware, the subtitle of this podcast, Losing My Religion, the subtitle is Trust Your Doubt. As a religious person, you're always taught not to trust your doubt. You're taught to disregard doubt, to believe. And it was only by respecting my doubt that I actually came to respect myself. And the book, by the way, can also be seen as a study in procrastination, kind of a humiliating study, because even when the answer is screaming at me and it's so clear to me now as a reader looking back and even when I had profound insights. Time and time again, I was willing to leave them aside and respect other people's opinions more than my own. And if you like, the the finale, the climax of the book comes when the counsellor kind of forces me, respecting my freedom. But she just really gets me to answer, not from my head, but to get out of my head and to speak from my gut. And of course, before you speak from your gut, become aware And the thing is, the gut, the gut can't believe in a revealed religion. The gut is your truth. And when you doubt everything, as I did, what are you left with? And it was scary, really scary for me, having committed my life to the Marist priesthood, Catholic priesthood within the congregation called the Marist Father's. Having taken my vows for life and being six months to a year away from being ordained a priest and pretty much all of my studies completed, it was scary to decide to go with my gut rather than the wisdom of the ages and the magisterium of the church and the moral force of the scriptures and the final vows you've already taken and the pressure from Some priests who really wanted me to stay. My identity was totally caught up in the path that I had chosen. My financial security, my role, my income, my health care, the shelter over my head, food, education, all of that. So I guess I've just needed to write this book. So if you would like to buy the book, you can do so on Amazon. You can choose either the paperback. Or the Kindle version. And depending on where you are, the price would be different. But it really isn't about money. And the paperback is it's a substantial book, I think 325 pages. So that's about it, really. It would be wonderful if you also reviewed the book on Amazon and if you told everybody about it. Well, Maureen Potter used to, people of my age will remember Maureen Potter. She did the pantomime in the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin when I was a child. And she used to say at the end of the, the show, as me mother used to say, If you love it, tell everybody about it. And if you don't, keep your breath to cool your porridge. So if you like the book, please tell everybody, please write reviews. Amazon reviews It will help pop the book into the hands of influencers if you can. Somebody said to me that publishing a book was the closest a man can get to giving birth. I hope you enjoy it and uh, thank you for listening. In My Gut, I Don't Believe, a memoir by Joe Armstrong is now available on Amazon and can be ordered from any bookshop in the world. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at podcastlosingmyreligion at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at losing my or R-E-L-I-G, one. That's the figure one. Please consider supporting our podcast at patreon.com slash losingmyreligion. That's patreo dot com slash losingmyreligion. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to follow us so you don't miss any episode. Happy days.